Okay. I mean, it says it on mine. <laughs> this is yet another awkward intro. To the there we episode. go. Well, I was doing a turkey sound because this is the Thanksgiving episode. Yeah, Let me try ha- it again. Okay. Happy you Thanksgiving. Totally, you totally disappeared. You have to do it one more time. I disappeared sound-wise? Yeah. yeah. How about that? Perfect. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Welcome to the... <laughs> the uh, full of gratitude episode of the weirdest thing podcast yeah. grateful that we're only probably going to be here about an hour today so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we're doing something a little different this week uh this is our first ever odds and ends episodes do you want to kind of explain what an odds and ends episode is sure so so when we were planning all this stuff for when we were in the planning stages of this podcast, Scotty and I came up with a list of things that we wanted to do for episodes. And I had one that's going to be one of my stories this week. And that was that was actually supposed to be the second episode. And right. I started to do the research for it and came back to Scotty and said, hey, this is going to be like a five minute story. There's not <laughs> a lot to this. So I can scrap it or and then I think just through discussion, you and I were like, well, maybe it'd be fun to do like an odds and ends, a burnt ends episode, if you will, Mm -hmm. if you're a barbecue fan of stuff that topics that wouldn't take up an entire episode, but they're still super interesting anyways. Yeah. So it's just like a little hodgepodge of, of different weirdness for you today. Yeah. There's no real theme. So if you have that in your mind, just release that idea and allow yourself to be taken into the stories that we're bringing you this week. I was trying to do like my yoga SMR voice. I was going to say that turned into some ASMR there. That was. (laughs) Allow yourself to breathe deep and release all of your preconceptions about today's episode. Careful because I'm kind of on painkiller. So you might just put me to sleep. You keep talking like that. Just a (laughs) Scotty. All right. Well, I guess I'm starting it off this week. So I'm going to. Oh, wait. Hold on. Hold on. I have a question. Are we alternating or are you doing all three of yours at once? Let's alternate. I think so. Yeah. I think that's more fun. Good job. So I'm going to do something that I feel like this is the only chance, or well, maybe not the only chance, but I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a book review. uh, Because I want to talk about one of my favorite horror novels of all time that is kind of unappreciated i would say it it was it was very like well thought of well received book when it came out but it's kind of forgotten now so it's called i'm going to show the book cover to amelia um and i'll post this on social media (laughs) only i get to see it (laughs) it's called the md what is what's the subtitle the md a horror story it's by a guy named Thomas M. Dish. And some of you guys might know that name, Thomas M. Dish, because he's actually a very pretty famous writer. But he, he's not particularly well known as a horror writer. So I'm going to talk first start off just talking a little bit about Thomas M. Dish himself, because he's kind of an interesting guy. Okay. So he was born February 2nd, 1940. He was born in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, But his family moved to St. Paul, Minnesota when he was 13. And that's going to be important when I get to talking about the book. He was raised a very strict Catholic, went to Catholic school, did the whole thing. But he was gay. And I think he came out in the late 1960s when he was an adult. But um, 
growing up gay in the Catholic church in the forties and fifties, he developed a real hostile attitude towards the Catholic church. (laughs) Okay. I would, um, I would, I would, I understand that. Right. And yeah. And, and it, and it comes up quite a bit in his books. He, he's very scathing about the Catholic church. Okay. He began writing science fiction and poetry as a teenager and then eventually moved to New York city. His, his initial plan was he either wanted to break into theater or into the literary world. And it sounds like from what I've read, he kind of didn't know where he was going. He just knew he wanted to be a writer, knew he kind of liked sci-fi, knew he liked writing poetry, moved to New York and was sort of like, let's just see what happens. And then he ended up basically moving to New York and publishing at the exact right time, because this was the rise of what's called the new wave of science fiction. Okay. So science fiction you know, if you look at the development of the literary genre, I'm not so much talking about the movies. It was really, it was based on the pulps. It was very like high adventure space opera type stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was, and also a lot of, of that early sci- uh, sci-fi was very weirdly right-wing, like very militaristic. You have writers like Robert Heinlein, for instance, is kind of known for that. And this new wave started in the 1960s and it was really sort of trying to push back against a lot of those conventions so the stories moved more in a literary direction kind of away from the pulp direction they got much darker much more serious and then really started taking on a lot of very specific socio-political critiques often though probably not always from a very left-wing kind of perspective and also the genre got much more diverse you had writers like Samuel Delaney was really uh, associated with the new wave of sci-fi. He was a black gay author in the 60s and 70s. You know, this was back when this was certainly back then not common. You also had Octavia Butler um, and you had Thomas M. Dish, who was a gay man. Some of the other famous new wave of sci-fi authors that people might know would be like Harlan Ellison who uh, I should tell my Harlan Ellison story someday. I won't do it today, but okay. I've, actually met, I've actually met the guy a couple times and he was a fucking lunatic, but um, moving on. You okay. also had Philip K. Dick, who was also famously a lunatic. Okay. <laughs> Ursula K. Le Guin. Okay. Uh, Philip K. Ask. Dick, what do I, wh- why do I know that name? He's, he's known for, his novels are the, basis, are the basis for a lot of very popular sci-fi movies like Total Recall. Blade okay. Runner, okay. etc. Uh, Philip K. Dick was very known for like mind bendy, reality bendy type stuff. He was also like crazy, crazy druggy, um, very deeply into like LSD, things like that. So mm-hmm. definitely shows up in his writing. More recently, people will probably know Philip K. Dick as he wrote the novel that the Amazon series Man in the High Castle is based on. Okay, that's what I was thinking of. That's okay. what you're thinking of? Yeah. yeah. You also have Ursula K. Le Guin, Joanna Russ, J.G. Ballard, who's uh, another one of my favorite writers. He kind of started as a sci-fi writer and then turned into a much more like observational of like British class society kind of writer. Okay. Um, probably most known actually for the novel Empire of the Sun, which is ah. yeah, a World War II novel, not, not a sci-fi novel. I watched the hell out of that movie oh, when movie. I was younger because I got completely enamored with Christian Bale Mm -hmm. and so have then went on to watch like everything he's ever been in Mm -hmm. this was this was circa newsies for anybody (laughs) who's interested yeah and I think (laughs) I think stupid movie (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen newsies I remember I had a bunch of friends who were like obsessed with it 
Oh my God. It is so worthy of obsession. Um, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. And actually based on like a, an incredibly interesting story mm-hmm. um, that maybe we'll cover here someday. Oh, uh, but Disney got a hold of it and was like, we know Newsboys, New York, musical <laughs> and i believe if i remember correctly sorry let's do we'll do a quick little sidebar quick little christian bale sidebar if i rem- remembering correctly when christian bale signed on to do the movie it was supposed to be like a straight story about the the newsboy strike mm-hmm. and he was like yeah this sounds awesome super cool i can't wait to do this and then they were like and by the it's way. a musical. <laughs> and he was like, I'm sorry, what? And so there are, you can see scenes of him, like giant dance numbers where, I mean, these dancers are like singing and dancing their little hearts out. And Kirsten Bale totally looks like he's like, I can't believe my agent yeah. couldn't get me out of this. Completely lost. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. Um, well, I believe Empire of the Sun was his first film. Uh, I think it I'm was. Not sure. He he was pretty young when he did Empire of the Sun, and Empire this is a total sidebar. But Empire of the Sun, interestingly, is actually is the novel is written by J.G. Ballard, mm-hmm. and it's it was an autobiographical story, of, really of his childhood. Yeah. Oh wow! It's a great book and it's a great movie. If you guys haven't seen or read that book, you really should. Okay, but back to the new wave of sci-fi. So the right. whole it was very disconnected. It wasn't even really a genre. It was just these kind of newer rowdier writers kind of coming out of the beat era going into the hippie era pushing against convention Uh, a lot of them didn't really get along they didn't like being associated with each other but it did kind of coalesce around a magazine called new worlds magazine which had been around apparently since like the 1930s but at this time it had been taken over by michael moorcock who's a very famous sci-fi and fantasy writer and he really pushed it in this kind of new wave direction interesting little a uh, sidebar about Thomas and Dish and Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. I pulled this from Wikipedia. I hadn't, I didn't know this before. Uh, Thomas and Dish and Philip K. Dick were friends at first, and Thomas and Dish really was an admirer of Philip K. Dick. But then Philip K. Dick, being the crazy psycho that he was, ended up writing this really infamous letter to the FBI in October of 1972 that, quote, denounced Dish and suggested that there were coded messages prompted by a covert organization in Dish's novel Camp Concentration. So kind of going back to your, like, conspiracy Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, Rude. And and then, so he sent this letter to the FBI, and then Thomas M. Dish, totally not knowing he had done this, was, like, he went on to, like, push for Philip K. Dick to win awards. He, He championed the Philip K. Dick Award, which was, I think, what the world sci-fi organization i don't remember which one but then when he finally found out about it he actually got revenge on uh philip k dick in (laughs) his very last novel called the word of god with a quote story in which dick is dead and living in hell unable to write because of writer's block in return for a taste of human blood which will unlock his ability to write he makes a deal to go back in time and kill Thomas and Dish's father so that Dish will never be born and at the same time to kill Thomas Mann and thereby ensure that Hitler wins World War II. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's just like the weirdest literary feud that I want to that's, learn more about this because I just stumbled on it today when I was reading That's it. fantastic. So, but so anyway uh, Phil or not Phil Kiddick uh, Thomas and Dish he's mostly known for his sci-fi work um, mm-hmm. probably in particular his novel The Genocides uh, from 1965 is his first book. Mm-hmm. And then his dystopian 
kind of like 1984-ish novel called uh, Camp Concentration, which came okay. out in 1968. Uh, he was also very well respected as a poet. And then like in the early 80s, he became an author of children's books, uh, specifically The Brave Little Toaster, <laughs> um, which I believe was turned into a Disney film. Okay. Now here's a little, this is sad. So Thomas M. Dish was gay. He had been with his partner, who was another writer, a guy named Charles Naylor, for over 30 years. But then mm. uh, Charles Naylor died in 2005. Oh. This sent Thomas M. Dish into a deep depression. He was also dealing with failing health and financial difficulties. He was mm. about to lose his apartment. So he ended up taking his own life in 2008 oh. with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Uh, interestingly i have been a thomas m dish fan ever since i read dmd probably mm -hmm. early 90s i never knew that he was gay until reading his obituary i think in the new york times oh, and wow. then reading up on him for this episode it turned out he he was openly gay mm -hmm. he wasn't hiding anything but he was very diligent about not wanting to be known as a gay writer um, so he sort of when you read his work he sort of like there's a subtext that you can find he'll glance at it mm -hmm. but he rarely writes overtly gay themed material okay so a lot of people didn't actually know that he was gay including myself oh. so like i said he was mostly known as a sci-fi writer mm -hmm. but he did write four horror novels in the 1990s that are called his supernatural minnesota series okay um, and they, they're all centered around the St. Paul, Minneapolis area that he had grown up in. Mm -hmm. They're not narratively connected, but they sort of offer this similar mix of like a slice of life observational quality, some pretty scathing social satire, and mm -hmm. then all on a spine of like a supernatural horror story. Mm -hmm. So the four books are The Businessman, A Tale of Terror from 1984, The MD, A Horror Story, which is the one I'm going to talk about today. Uh, that was from 1991. The Priest, a gothic romance from 1994, and then The Sub, a study in witchcraft, 1999. So I'm going to talk specifically about this book. And let me just read, I, I guess before I read it, before I was just going to read the dust jacket flap mm -hmm. information. But to get a sense of like what the tone of this book is, imagine like a John Irving novel, but okay. as a horror story. Like... Like if you've ever read like The World According to Garp or mm -hmm. Hotel New Hampshire or anything like that, imagine that, but with a supernatural horror like underpinning. It's that okay. multi-generational family saga where all the characters are kind of sort of eccentric, but also kind of believable. You know, it's mm -hmm. like a slightly heightened reality, but still pretty firmly rooted. But then mix that in with a really crazy supernatural horror story. So I'm going to okay, read, this is just the from the inside flap of the hardcover. <laughs> a mesmerizing novel of suspense and supernatural horror set in the recent past and a near future grislier than anyone could possibly imagine, in which the caduceus, the winged serpentine emblem of the physician's healing art, becomes the ultimate instrument of corruption and death. In Minneapolis in the early 70s, a young boy has a vision of Santa Claus on a snowy winter's day. This is Billy Michaels' first glimpse of the forces that will form and deform his life. Santa, as it turns out, is only one of the many guises adopted by Mercury, the ancient god of medical science, who now introduces Billy to the Caduceus and its extraordinary powers. We watch, galvanized, as the future MD of the title learns to, quote, charge this dreadful talisman, renewing its ability to heal by first using it to blight and afflict. His best and worst impulses prove horrendous to boyhood enemies and friends, to the beautiful stepsister he loves, 
into his own mother. But the lure of the caduceus is irresistible, and Billy inevitably, inevitably becomes Dr. William Michaels, a man of immense wealth, the director of a research foundation, a national celebrity. Even so, he can maintain his omnipotence only by creating a plague every bit as monstrous as AIDS, and Arvids, of course, is treatable only with the instrument in his sole possession. Yet, after a series of careless mistakes, the skein of Dr. Michael's cures and curses begins to unravel, and ripe for retribution, he begins his plummet toward a gruesomely fitting end. Yikes. Yeah. So, it's, like, I remember reading this book when I first got into horror. Mm-hmm. Um, like got really serious about it. And it was probably one of the first non-Stephen King horror novels I read. It was in paperback at the time. Mm-hmm. I think I read a review in Fangoria magazine. Like they had okay. the Nightmare <laughs> Library, <laughs> uh-huh. like capsule book reviews. And I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And I really had no idea what to expect. And it was not at all what I expected. The first half of the book, like it's sort of, sort of supernatural. And then it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. And probably the last third of the book is some of the craziest bullshit that you'll ever read. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably my favorite non-Stephen King horror novel okay. out there. Um, and like I said, it's one of those that, you know, it was very highly thought of at the time, but then it's kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. So I just yeah, wanted I've to- Yeah, I've never heard of that book. Yeah. I, and I've been evangelizing about it to my friends. I've gotten several of my friends to read it over nice. the years. But it's just one I wanted to show a little bit of love because not a lot of people know about it fantastic Um, and it's from one of the great writers of all time it's just not known for the genre particularly so nice that is the story of the md a horror story oh fantastic cool all right yeah okay well sir i uh, i guess kind of on like a sci-fi theme um (laughs) which is again it's probably going to be the only thread to tie any of these things together (laughs) so i'm going to talk about the myths and urban legends of the chupacabra yeah so this was the episode like i was saying earlier that i was like yeah i think you wanted to there was another one that you wanted to match it with and and i think some other like supernatural i think we were going to do this with mothman and then you realized that's right there wasn't enough so that's right instead yeah, I was like, there's nothing here. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's not a lot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so let's let's get started. Uh I'm also gonna start this off with, you know, I'll I'll go ahead and and be very honest with you, with you, you, Scotty, and all of our listeners, that I really thought that Chupacabra was something that had been around forever. Mm-hmm. It felt it still feels like it's Loch Ness Monster, Sasquatch you know, any of those things, any of these like cryptids that have been around, they, they've been in my consciousness for, mm-hmm. for always. That is not the case yeah. <laughs> at all. <laughs> so our story is going to start very briefly. We're going to, we're going to hop around in time a little bit, but uh, we're going to start very briefly in the early 1970s in Brownsville, Texas, a rancher finds a dead bull with no blood around the dead animal and no tracks. Mm. Then we're going to hop forward to the mid-1970s in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas. There is a rash of uh, mutilated cattle. Mm -hmm. The blood of these animals is allegedly removed to the last drop. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to fast forward to 1994, uh, Puerto Rico. There are reports, okay, I was only able to find this. (laughs) in one source but the paper was like from yale 
Okay. So do with that information what you will. Okay, so 1994, Puerto Rico reports of four to six little grays. That's Hmm. the only description of whatever it is that these are. So reports of four to six little grays found under a bed and chased out of the house with a broom. (laughs) Okay, under a bed. Under a bed, indoors, chased out with a broom. Okay. Who knows what that means? Who knows? Then in March of 1995, still in Puerto Rico, eight sheep are discovered dead and they each have three puncture wounds in the chest and are drained of blood. Mm. In August of that same year, 1995, a woman named Madeline Tolentino encounters a creature that she believes to be responsible for the attacks in the town of Canovanas, Puerto Rico. About that's and and that town is about 30 minutes east of of San Juan. Okay. So a about 150 farm animals and, and, and pets had been reportedly killed in this time period. And the killings at first were thought to be part of a satanic cult because mm-hmm. obviously yeah. satanic cults. This all sets off like this massive wave of animal killings all over the island. Farmers are obviously like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Nobody, like, nobody can see anything. Nobody catches anything. It's all super creepy. And all of the animals have been bled dry through these small, like circular incisions or puncture wounds. Mm-hmm. At some point during all of this, Puerto Rican comedian, he's also listed as an entrepreneur, Silvio <laughs> Perez, coins the term chupacabra, which literally translates into goat sucker. Yeah, I think I knew that. That was like Mm -hmm. the one thing I knew about Chupacabra. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, there we go. So Madeline Tolentino, the woman who was like, yo, I I saw it. She describes the Chupacabra as a bipedal creature about four to five feet tall with large eyes and spikes down its back and long Mm. claws. The description of this creature greatly matches the description, the look of the alien Sill from the movie Species. (laughs) Which came out around that time. It had, and Tolentino had, in fact, seen the movie prior to making this report. So Benjamin Radford, he is a New Mexico native. Shout out. He um, is- I'm referring to him in one of my stories. Anyway, Shut up, seriously? Yeah. (laughs) Cool. All right, New Mexico connection. So he's a New Mexico native, and he spent about five years investigating the Chupacabra for his 2011 book, Tracking the Chupacabra. Uh, Radford is a writer, investigator, skeptic, and researcher with the Center for Skeptical Inquiry, which sounds like a badass job. Mm -hmm. I mean, sign me up. Um, (laughs) Although if there's a lot of research, I think it's pretty clear from this podcast so far that I... I can spin a great yarn, uh, but (laughs) in-depth research may not be my forte. So he has investigated urban legends, unexplained mysteries, the paranormal, and media literacy, which when I first came across that, I was like, that's out of left field. It's actually not. Like, when I started to think about it, I was like, no, that totally makes sense. It all kind of goes together. 100% ties together. So through his investigation, Radford comes to the conclusion that the creature and events that Tolentino believes she saw were heavily influenced by what she saw in the movie Species, Mm -hmm. um, which is also just a ridiculous (laughs) movie. It is ridiculous. Who is the, is the woman, who's the woman in it? Do you remember? Who was that? I I just remember she's blonde, right? She's She's like- Blonde and like German. Yeah, she's like blonde. She's got a body. Was it Diane Kruger? No. I don't 
think so. Fact okay. check us, people. Fact check us. Leave in the <laughs> comments. So he says, uh, he goes on to say that the most important chupacabra description cannot be trusted. It's also mm. never proved that the animals were sucked dry. There was a veterinarian who looked at roughly 300 animal carcasses mm. who were reported chupacabra victims and found that none of them had been bled dry. So... How the hell did Chupacabra become nearly as well-known as like Bigfoot in significantly less time? Yeah. Again, 94, 95, I really could have sworn that I had been hearing about Chupacabra my whole life. I feel but... like I, I, I could have sworn I'd heard of it when I was a kid, but apparently not. Right. What's that? Is it the Mandela effect? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. Ooh, we should do an episode about the Mandela Ooh, effect. Ooh, we will. And then... fucking crazy. <laughs> and then we can throw in the fact that uh, listeners, let us know if you've always felt like chupacabra has been around mm -hmm. also if you are uh significantly younger than scotty and i don't fucking bother because then it has been around all your yeah. fucking life there's we some love specific you. people i could call out I'm not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> you know who you are okay so the story spread because of the internet which was yeah. Fairly new at that time. It spread like wildflower throughout the island of Puerto Rico and then the rest of Latin America and then up into the southern United States. The myth was wildly popular on, you know, the brand new shiny internet and was quickly picked up by UFO and other conspiracy theorists. Of course. Of course. Theories on what this creature was varied from an escaped U.S. genetic experiment mm -hmm. to an alien collecting blood to spread AIDS. Mm. I, th I feel like that's rude. Um, yeah. The form, whenever they talked about it, the the like he, he chupacabra came in a lot of forms. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got the spiny alien, we've got a bat winged creature, uh, we've got something that floats through the air using using psychokinesis. <laughs> uh, okay, so it's in like the a early, little mini Mothman almost. It is a little mini moth. <laughs> <laughs> a pocket Mothman, if a you will. Um, that so may the, have to be the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So in the early 2000s, a new kind of chupacabra emerges. The alien is replaced by sightings of a hairless dog-like creature that mm -hmm. walks on all fours. Okay, so in 2007, in the town of Cuero, Texas, a woman sees what she believes to be a chupacabra traipsing through her pastures uh this is i from what i understood this is all farmland because mm -hmm. like everybody like in in i was reading um oh it was an article from the texas observer and like everybody in this story is like well go ahead and hop on my tractor and yeah so farmland so she sees this four-legged creature hairless creature traipsing through her pastures and she begins to find like her chickens dead drained of blood and she hollers to the neighbor. She's like, yo, something's killing my chickens. I've seen mm. this weird thing. Keep your eyes peeled. Pretty soon after that, a neighbor calls her and tells her that uh, one of these creatures had been hit by a car and was laying dead on the side of the road. So she's like, let me pop over in my tractor, pick it up, bring it home, and see, see if I can't figure out what this is. I just love that let me pop over on my tractor. <laughs> Way I mean that, life. <laughs> that is that is a little bit of me editorializing, yeah. but she did show up in her tractor. Uh, well, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like you know show up in her Volvo or anything. She was like, "Let me pop over in the in the tractor." No, no Prius, uh, Chupacabra. Right. Recovery. Let me let me fire up the John Deere and I'll be right over, Earl. Okay, so she picks the 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 carcass up, photographs it, stuffs it, mounts it. So now we have Chupacabra corpses being found. Mm -hmm. According to Radford, he is like, this is 
fantastic. Like this is a game changer. He's like, let's get them into a lab. Let's take DNA. Let's get bone samples. Like fucking science. That is obviously not a direct quote from <laughs> Benjamin Radford. Science the shit out <laughs> <Radford>. of Radford. <laughs> <laughs> let's fucking hit this shit with some science. <laughs> and then a lot of like boop, 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 beeps. Okay, so Radford ends up testing about 12 reported chupacabra corpses and finds the bodies are all coyotes, dogs, raccoons, and even in one case, a fish. (laughs) Okay. That one made me laugh because I love the idea that somebody was like, there's a chupacabra over here. And it's It's like like, clearly a a dead fish. Yeah. Yeah. That woman in Texas is undeterred by all of this. She says that she's had her chupacabra's DNA tested at five different universities and the DNA doesn't match any animal in these universities' archives. That's mm-hmm. not exactly true. Yeah, I was um, going to say. <laughs> waiting for the other shoe to drop here. Right. Radford explains in his book, which was uh, the 2011 Tracking the Chupacabra, that Texas State University, which is my alma mater, mm-hmm. uh, go Bobcats, um, <laughs> Hold on. Was that our, I believe that was our mascot. Okay. (laughs) So uh, Texas State University found that the DNA was a complete and total match to a coyote. Mm -hmm. Like unequivocally, unquestionable coyote. I mean, I remember seeing those pictures and being like, that sure looks like a mangy coyote to me. Yeah. Like the one that she has at home in her house, which is like, I mean, like stuffed and like taxidermy, you know, and in her, in her, she's clearly a hunting mm-hmm. uh, aficionado because she's got like the deer heads on the walls yeah. and all that kind of stuff in this room. It's, I mean, the thing is clearly a coyote. Yeah. So, okay. So, but hold on in the spirit mm-hmm. of a good argument. Sure. Why can't people tell the difference between a coyote and a mythical creature? So let's ask that question. Mm-hmm. What everybody believes to be the reason for this is that all of these animals suffered from something called sarcoptic mange, mm-hmm. which was caused by these itch-inducing mites that not only cause fur loss, but like I said, they're itch-inducing. So these animals go and they scratch on anything that they can find, posts, dirt, yeah. trees, whatever. And that causes a thickening and a discoloration of the skin. Like mm-hmm. their skin can turn black yeah. uh, from this... Uh, this mange and so boom instant cryptid there you go okay but what about all that dead livestock right because we've got hundreds and hundreds of dead animals at this point yeah i've got thoughts on that but i'll let you finish okay all right so (laughs) these animals were most likely the victims of other animal attacks dogs Mm -hmm. coyotes etc there's not so when when i was doing research on the chupacabra there is of course tons of stuff from you know like youtube videos and people being like i'm tracking the chupacabra but if you're talking about anything that's actually like a reliable journalistic source everybody's like hey guys like Mm -hmm. these animals weren't even attacked by by like vampiric animals vampire bats or there's also i think like a vampire eel and those animals have specialized teeth and digestive systems. apparently blood is very hard to digest yeah um and can be i think quite toxic if you don't have the correct digestive system for it. None of the markings on any of these animals were made from an, from a vampiric animal. Mm -hmm. So 
so the creatures that have been offered up as chupacabras may look bizarre. So these, these corpses that have been found uh, might look bizarre, but oh, this is, sorry, this is, let me go back a bit. This is a direct quote from the Texas Observer. Quote, the creatures that have been offered up as chupacabras may look bizarre, but hey, just don't have the anatomy for vampirism. That, <laughs> end quote, Texas yeah. Observer. Okay, but still, these animals that were found were still bloodless. So what the hell is going on with that? Well, they weren't bloodless. Mm-hmm. Due to lividity, which for anybody who doesn't watch CSI is the coagulation (laughs) and settling of blood in a corpse, a corpse will give the illusion if cut into after death that blood has been drained, but it hasn't. It's just collected on the the, the face side down of the body. I feel like in my reading of vampires over the years, there's theories that some of the vampire myths may come from the same thing, that like people would cut into dead bodies and not understanding lividity would be like, where's all the blood? Yeah. Yeah. Which, and that's, I mean, that's kind of a, like, again, if you watch any, if you watch any CSI, if you do anything like that, you always hear people talk about lividity. And the thing is, is that in a human, if you were to flip, this is morbid. um, But if you were to flip a human corpse over the blood will, will all pool on, on one side of the body. It's just gravity working. Yeah. But yeah, it's not like, Blood isn't going to move unless there's a heart to pump it and, and push it out. Right. I mean, you kind of got to think of it like your hose. Yeah, exactly. In your garden. That was a weird analogy. I feel that hopefully people caught onto it. I'm imagining <laughs> arterial spray, so I follow. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Like you, the, there has to be something to move the, right. the, the fluid. So the BBC article that I read, which was all about Radford. If I've been, his name is Radford, right? If I've been yeah. calling him Radman, I'm really sorry. No, it's Radford. You, you've got it right. I told you I'm, I'm not staring a at his name right on my screen. So. <laughs> okay. So in a BBC article about, uh, about that dude, the article says, quote, the whole story is a perfect storm of scientific misunderstanding, misidentification of animals, media hype, cultural anxiety, and mass hysteria. End yeah. quote. Or at least that's what they want us to believe. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I, mean, I do have some thoughts on the cow mutilation thing. Okay. Because so when I lived in Colorado 27 years ago when I was going to college, I actually was going to college in Alamosa, right. which is was sort of like where the cow mutilation thing started it was mm-hmm. in the San Luis Valley. And I did an article for the student newspaper where I kind of followed up on some uh-huh. of these stories. And I actually called some of the people who were sort of famous like you know, there was the famous Snippy the horse story and a couple others. And like some of these cow mutilations, you know, these were all in like the 60s and 70s, I think, mm-hmm. were genuinely strange. Like, you right. know, things were dissected, there were burn marks, stuff like that. There was one story where a bull was found, like lifted up onto this like granite rock that it could, it was like a multi ton bull. So, okay. like, there's definitely some stuff that's like, something's going on and then the whole thing with like you know people would find their cows mutilated report it and then the next day would go out into their field and there's like a helicopter in their field that would take off as soon as they saw it. so it's like <laughs> some very strange things that were very consistent within this right region. but what i feel like happened is then a few people hear about the cow mutilation story and then anytime you find a dead animal it's like oh, well, it's aliens right like, and comes that confirmation bias thing so right and what with the exception of the chickens which it's really not hard to kill a chicken i mean like yeah i've never tried but i assume we could talk to my mom about it (laughs) it is or anybody who's grown up on a farm or a ranch like they're not hard uh to 
oh, this is gruesome, but like their little bodies aren't hard to tear apart. Right. You know what I mean? And all of the other livestock, the, the goats and the sheep and all of that stuff weren't mutilated. They were just found dead. Yeah. And everybody, and then it like seemed to through, you know, a, a, an urban legend game of telephone exactly. turned into this thing of like, no, they were mutilated. And it's like, well, they actually weren't mutilated. They were just found dead. Well, yeah. I- and so it probably was just like coyotes and dogs and you know, stuff like that. Well, and it's interesting, like thinking about like what you said about this really being driven by the internet. I feel like with the benefit of hindsight, Mm -hmm. we can look back at the Chupacabra and be like, Ooh, that was like a bad sign for where things were going with the internet. Cause that's like kind of where we ended up with like QAnon and shit like that, you know? Sorry. <laughs> I was taking a drink of water when Scotty said that. Yeah, yeah. And and one hundred percent the people that were getting on the chat rooms in the in the mid nineties to talk about Chupacabra are now the ones who are spreading about videos Chupacabra. about yeah, yeah, about weird pedophile pizza rings and, and stuff like that. The earth being flat and et cetera. Yeah. Et cetera. Yes, one hundred percent. That's interesting. I really, I really, I was like you. I thought Chupacabra had been around since I was a kid. But apparently, I thought I, I thought I was gonna find that it was like an old, like you know, an old yeah. like Mexican myth or something. Not yeah, at like all. La Llorona or something. But yep, nope. not at all. Fascinating. Bum bum. Bum. <laughs> I was gonna end it with the with the uh, oh no I should have done if it was gonna be CSI I got my I got my crime procedurals mixed up oh yeah you were so doing Law and Order then. yeah which should have been like the wow or whatever the song because they always have like a rock song that <laughs> starts them off <laughs> so you can put that right here yeah. Well, that's a good segue into my next story because mine's pretty fucking metal. So Okay. Uh, I've got my own cryptid to talk about. It's the Mongolian death worm. Ooh, I already don't like this. Yeah. And, and so my sources for this were, the first one is Mongolian death worm, elusive legend of the Gobi Desert by Benjamin Radford. hey From June 21st, 2014 on LiveScience.com. Fantastic. There's also an article called Meet the Mongolian Death Worm, the cryptid armed with spikes, venom, and electric shocks. Jesus. This is uh, by Natasha Ishak, July 22nd, 2020, from allthatsinteresting.com. And then, of course, the good old standby Wikipedia. Um, big up to Wikipedia. Big up to Wikipedia. So the Mongolian Death Worm, also known by the people of the region in Mongolia as the, I'm going to get this pronunciation wrong, so forgive me, but it's Ogoi Korkoi, which loosely translates to large intestine worm because it supposedly looks like a big inflated cow intestine. It's alleged to exist in the Gobi Desert, and it was first described to like a Western audience Mm -hmm. by an American explorer slash paleontologist named Roy Chapman Andrews in his book on the trail of the ancient man from 1926. He basically tells the stories that people in this region of, I believe it's the Southern Gobi, but I could be wrong about that, which is, you know, in China, Mongolia, that kind of area. People all around this region would talk about this supposed Ogoi Korkoi. He didn't believe in it, but he did report on the stories of course. Here's a quote from Roy Chapman Andrews where he says, Then the premier asked that if it were possible, I should capture for the Mongolian government a specimen 
a specimen of the Algoi Kirkoi. None of those present had ever seen the creature, but they all firmly believed in its existence and described it minutely. The premier said that although he had never seen it himself, he knew a man who had and had lived to tell the tale. Then a cabinet minister stated that the cousin of his late wife's sister had also seen it. (laughs) So, you know. The cousin of his late, okay, here's, I'm just going to give people a code to live by, basically. Yeah. Which is, you can't have a source for a story be more than like one. One degree. One degree away from you. So it's got to be my brother's best friend. Yeah. My boss's wife it cannot be my what was this one my the sister cousin of his late wife's sister uh-uh unacceptable yeah. that's yeah. too far exactly I, I i think we can all sort of file that where it belongs yeah okay so so the algoi carcoy is described as being long and quote sausage like with a dark <laughs> red color <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> was it the air quotes that got you there? <laughs> I, I think it was just all of it. It was <laughs> it's just so good. So good. Yeah. So it's long and Sasha's like with a dark red color and then spikes that protrude out of both ends of its body. Supposedly it can reach up to five feet in length. And they supposedly spend most of their time burrowing into the sands of the Gobi Desert. Okay. But can occasionally be seen on the surface during the wetter months of June and July. Blech. Like now, earthworms? Yeah, exactly. Blech. Okay. Now, the Ogor Kirkoi uh, is, is a nasty little fucker. So it can kill you in all sorts of different ways. Okay. It can spit a stream of corrosive venom that kills anything that it hits. Mm-hmm. And it can even instantly corrode metal. Um, so like the blood from the xenomorph in the alien movies, basically. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. spits this shit at you. Um, It can also shoot electrical charges through the air and then electrocute its victims. Okay. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hold on. Yeah. Say that one more time. I know. I was a little bungled there. It shoots (laughs) electrical charges through the air to electrocute its victims. So like lightning bolts? Uh, I guess. It's like the Emperor from Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but it's not shooting like little like like projectile thingies at you. It's just I don't like, think so. I think it's more like like crackle okay. crackle like the quickening of the cool, Highlander can we get, or something. Can we get a, a bit of cool laser sounds underscore? Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll find something. Just that brief <laughs> pew pew pew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, perfect. Um, and then it's also supposedly super poisonous to the touch. Okay. So basically don't don't fuck with the Mongolian deathworm. Okay. So there have been many searches have been made for the Algoi Korkoi over the years, but they've all come up empty. Most famously, there is a, a Czech cryptozoologist named Ivan Mackerly. He did extensive research going back through ancient Mongolian literature, trying to find some sort of record of this creature, and then was actually able to get special permission from the Mongolian government to go look for this thing. He launched three different searches in 1990, 1992, and 2004. Turned up nothing. Mm. So here's, here's a quote from Ivan Mackerley. He says, another more dangerous animal also lives in the Gobi, the Algor Kokoi. It resembles an intestine filled with blood and it travels underground. Its movement can be detected from above via the waves of sand that it d- displaces. Kind of reminds me of the graboids from Tremors. Yeah, that's what I keep envisioning. Yeah. But like um, shooting 
but shooting electric death raids and <laughs> venomous spit at you at the same time. But uh, Michael Lee, he did everything from he set up cameras. Uh, they wet the ground to try and like draw them out. Mm-hmm. They used seismic thumpers to try and drive them out. Nothing happened. So ultimately, Macaulay decided that it's a mythical creature. It doesn't exist. So here's some reasons why it might exist. Okay. So the Gobi is one of the harshest regions on Earth. Mm-hmm. covers about 500,000 square miles of terrain. And it's much of it is largely unpopulated. So okay. it's really not inconceivable that some undiscovered species of animals could exist in there. Mm-hmm. And these animals could very well be what are called extremophiles, which means like animals that evolutionarily are designed to survive in really harsh extreme conditions. Okay. So that could be why it is so like hyper poisonous or whatever. So there, there's something. Now the Olgoi Kirkoi is widely known throughout this region of Mongolia throughout very distant, disparate, disconnected communities. And all of the descriptions are remarkably consistent. So it's possible someone's seeing something. Now, this kind of contradicts that earlier quote where I read this somewhere. It says, many of the stories are claimed to be eyewitness accounts rather than secondhand accounts. But then uh-huh. we just got that one about the fucking cousin's dead wife, sister's roommates, whatever. So I'm not sure. <laughs> How much I believe that. And then, you know, there's a question is, is it a worm? Is it something else? And they say, well, it is actually possible that it could be a worm. Like you said, you know, the fact that it comes up during the rainy season, that kind of sounds like earthworms, right? Yeah. But also apparently worms, with worms, the circulatory system, it functions by absorbing oxygen through their skin. They don't breathe. They don't have lungs. Mm -hmm. And then they carry it through the body. This would allow them potentially to grow to, man, I just keep burping on this podcast. Um, (laughs) Allows them to grow to large sizes, like the supposed five foot length of this Mongolian death worm. Right. So those are, that's some evidence that it could potentially exist. Okay. Here's the evidence that it doesn't exist. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> so there is literally nothing in the zoological record that has anything resembling these properties. I mean, yeah. yes, you do have poisonous things. You do have things with spikes. You do have various types of worms, etc. But combined all in one thing, the most suspicious thing really is the electrical death rays mm-hmm. part of it. Because like, mm-hmm. there are animals that can electrocute you, but they're all undersea animals. Yeah. There's, there's really no like terrestrial animal that can shoot electricity through the air to kill you. Thank so this God. sounds, yeah, exactly. So this sounds uh, pretty suspicious. And then, you know, probably the biggest evidence that it doesn't exist is that there's no evidence of it has ever been found. No corpses, yeah. no burrows, nothing. And the thing is, the Gobi is a very arid environment. So this should preserve or mummify some of the carcasses, but they've mm-hmm. never found any of them. Now, there is a possible real-world basis, you know, for some of these stories. And it Mm kind of goes back to your game of telephone, that it may be exaggerated descriptions of real existing creatures. Mm -hmm. So it is possible that the stories actually revolve around some species of snake or a legless lizard, which are literally Mm -hmm. called worm lizards. Mm -hmm. Um, They look like snakes or worms, but they're actually lizards. These are not uncommon animals that okay. have them. I mean, you can find them in this country. And they actually did show to some of the locals who had been talking about this supposed Algoi Krokoi, they were like, is this it? And they showed them a tartar sand boa, which is a type of snake. 
And everyone was like, oh, yeah, that's a Mongolian death march. So it's possible that they were Ooh. seeing <laughs> fake things. And then, like, you, you know, the game of telephone happens and all of a sudden right. it, it shoots electrical death rays and stuff. There are also, like I said, you know, there's no animal that sort of combines all of the features mm-hmm. of the Al Gore Kirkoy. But there are, for instance, snakes that can spit uh, venom. Cobras, mm-hmm. for instance, can spit venom. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm not laughing at, <laughs> I'm laughing because it just made me have a flashback to, um, some nature program that I had watched and it was, it was a little British couple and the, <laughs> it really felt like the poor wife had sort of been dragged into it because her husband was like real crazy about animals. And so she always ended up kind of like being the bait. So there's this <laughs> fantastic shot in whatever the show I was watching, whatever, where they're they're trying to get a poisonous snake to spit at her. So she's got the big like like science lab goggles on and she's just like sitting there like Ooh, like eyes closed and like, oh God, like waiting for the snake to spit at her so her husband can take slow-mo footage of it. <laughs> The things we do for love. Reminds me of, this is like a whole other sidebar, so I won't spend too much time on it. But <laughs> one of my favorite web personalities is this guy named Coyote Peterson. I think uh-huh. I've sent you videos from him. He's the guy that goes and finds the most like painful insects and then yes. purposely gets stung by them. That's where I learned how awful the tarantula hawk is, which I had. Mm-mm. I had one living by my trash can for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's things people do for some internet clicks. Yes, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> but yeah, so there are like snakes that can spit. So it's possible there's an undiscovered venomous snake in the Gobi that can spit poison. And then just the stories have kind of snowballed over the years. Yeah. It turned into the Mongolian death worm. If I was to like place a bet on this thing's existence i would mm-hmm. probably bet no I big don't, nah okay big nah i don't think i don't think there's like i'm, I'm more likely to believe in like the abominable snowman or something but okay. mongolian death worm even though it's like i wish they existed because like i said they're super fucking metal but right i kind of doubt it okay so, so is, on yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say on the on the weirdest thing podcast believability scale we're giving the mongolian death worm is that what it's called yeah we're gonna give it a three a three okay yeah <laughs> i mean i give mothman a six just so you okay know. but i'm giving I, this one now a i well now i really want the weirdest thing podcast believability scale with like different yeah. cryptids on it we're gonna have to design this Yay! i love that so much yeah. like especially if they're like cute but still kind of metal yeah. illustrations of the That's, cryptids I, I think we just landed on our first t-shirt design there we go okay yeah. so mongolian death room is a three you said mothman was a six i'm giving that a six i'm a giving six, chupacabra okay. like a 1.5 yeah unfortunately yeah i mean chupacabras are real they're just not chupacabras they're just they're, they're just they're mangy coyotes <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry yeah sorry guys <laughs> okay all right okay all right so what do you got next uh, so I'm going to talk, the next thing I'm going to talk about is the Night of Terror, which occurred on November 14th, 1917. This sounds like it needs, it sounds like it needs a trigger warning. It doesn't, doesn't really. Okay. Um, just so you know, you might hear that and be like, ooh, I'm going to skip forward. It, it doesn't really. Uh, there's a couple of things, but I'll, I'll get to them later and I'll let you okay. know. Okay, so this story begins with the suffragist movement. Uh, so yay, votes for women. Suffragist movement is a vast 
topic with various factions of which I am not going to go into at this point. I could technically do a whole season of this podcast just on everything there is to know about the suffragist movement. Right. So for the purpose of this story, I'm going to give you all like a hard, hard, hardcore Cliff's Notes version um, since our focus today is on, on the Night of Terror. So the dates vary, but somewhere in the mid-19th century, women's rights to vote uh, was starting to like really pick up steam as an issue across the globe. It should be noted here that many indigenous peoples already had suffrage practices and or matrilineal kinship systems where property and descent was passed via the female line. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, Also, suffrage was almost entirely about white women's right to vote. Mm -hmm. There 100% were women of color fighting for the right to vote, but they were not invited to the suffrage party. Black suffragist and civil rights leader Mary Church Terrell petitioned her white sisters for help getting black women the right to vote, and she was told that the disenfranchisement of black women was a race problem, not a gender one, and therefore outside the purview of the movement. Brent Staples wrote an op-ed about this for the New York Times, and he said, as the push for white women's rights neared its gold, which was the the ratification of an amendment, Mm -hmm. the movement hedged its bets by compromising with white supremacy. Yeah. So there's just some stuff to know about this as we head into it. And now back to white feminism. So white women were fighting for the right to vote. In 1917, the National Women's Party and Alice Paul, she was a Quaker suffragist and descendant of William Penn, who was the Quaker founder of the state of Pennsylvania. They organized the Silent Sentinels. Again, not going to get super into it, but the National Women's Party had broken away from another larger, more established suffragist moot like group um Mm -hmm. and the national women's party was seen as a militant suffragist Mm. group okay all of that is funny to me going (laughs) into what i'm gonna talk yeah Yeah. going into what i'm gonna talk about next so uh okay so they organized the silent sentinels the silent sentinels protested outside of the white house during woodrow wilson's presidency starting on january 10th 1917 they actually had gone to go have coffee with or I'm sorry, not to go have coffee. He invited them for coffee and they were like, nah, brah. Um, <laughs> but this is late. That was later on. So on January 9th, they met with him. And after that meeting, they were like, we need to, we, we, we want to, we need to do something to get the White House's attention, to get the administration's attention. Right. The silent sentinels were the first group to picket the White House. Hmm. So that's kind of cool. So these women, after meeting with Woodrow Wilson on January 9th, after, okay, at that meeting, Wilson, they they wanted to go and talk to him about the suffragist movement. And at that meeting, Wilson told the women to concert public opinion on behalf of women's suffrage, which was Mm -hmm. basically like get in line with how everybody else feels about women having the right to vote. Yeah. Um, So how, how did people feel about women having the right to vote. Uh, they didn't feel great about it. Yeah. Uh, many shocking, men, right? shockingly enough, I think the thing that's actually, like, it makes sense to me why, why, I mean, no offense, back then white men didn't want anybody to be able to do anything <laughs> like, other than white men. I, I like, and, and, <laughs> I mean, if anyone's offended by that, it's like, really, yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry, if you are offended by that, you have to go back to your history books because everywhere you turn in history is a group of white men being like, don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't look at it. You can't have that. You can't right. sit there. Like they were 100% 
mean girls. So, you know. Well, yeah, it's all about, you know, preserving their power and the status quo. I mean, it's... 100%. Like, I always think of, like, um, what's his name? William F. Buckley, who is sort of the founder of modern conservatism and his famous quote about, like, to be a conservative is to stand athwart history and yell, stop. Yeah. Really? That's what you want to do? Yeah. Okay. Okay, you know what? Then you don't get shit like penicillin and stuff, dude. Or the polio (laughs) vaccine. Get to the... Fuck you. Um, Okay. Why don't you go back to the horse and buggy, dude? Yeah. <laughs> so go churn some butter. Um, so eat a dick uh, and then go churn some butter. <laughs> that's the title of the episode. Yeah. Eat a dick and churn some butter. Um, <laughs> somewhere out there is somebody's. Just, my mom is just shaking her head at, me, at us right now. Um, <laughs> okay, so I understand that white dudes didn't want anybody to have anybody but them to have the vote. The thing that continues to blow my mind is the amount of women like this was not something where it was like oh there are a couple of women out there who were like i don't really want the white like they're like the majority of women did not want to gain the right to vote so they felt so the majority of people felt that giving women the right to vote would threaten the family institution that a woman's highest duties were motherhood and its responsibilities Uh that suffrage was uh, opposition to god's will that women should only be concerned with children kitchen and church Uh, they felt it violated gender norms and that if women were given the right to vote it would mean the end of true womanhood in our next episode i'm actually going to talk at uh, a bit more about true womanhood but actually it also comes into my next story as well so okay sorry guys there's a lot of stuff about feminism um <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry not sorry <laughs> um uh and they felt that it would undermine women's privileged status yeah. that was that one was also shocking to me that that there was a, a a mentality that it was like women like we are privileged and we hold this privileged place in society and yeah. if we gain the right to vote the right to work the right to family plan and all of that stuff that 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 privileged status would somehow be lost that uh, sounds like some stockholm syndrome bullshit to me i mean it's pretty clear that that's some heavily internalized misogyny yeah so there we go so that's that that was sort of general feeling about women getting the right to vote the protests were tolerated at first that would soon change. And this group of women were called the silent sentinels because of their use of silent protests, which was apparently a new and strategic method of protest at the time. So they would go out there with these signs and these banners and say nothing, which I have to imagine was probably a pretty, like if you've ever seen any footage of a silent protest, it's unnerving. Yeah. They're disconcerting. If you, especially like the more people you have, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, and, and I don't, I don't even, I don't mean that like in a, like in a bad way. It's just that many people being that quiet, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's impactful. Yeah. So like I said, instead of shouting their slogans, they carried banners that said stuff like, Mr. President, what will you do for women's suffrage? Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? We will fight for the things which we have always carried nearest to our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government. That was Wilson's own words. Mm. And uh, the time has come to conquer or submit. For us, there can be but one choice. Also Wilson's words. That was a little bit of them playing dirty because there was no way to report on the ridiculousness of their signage without insulting the president. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so they also had another one that said, Kaiser Wilson, have you forgotten your sympathy with the poor Germans because they were not self-governed? 20 million American women are not self-governed. Take the beam out of your own eye. Mm. That one was hard because it compares Wilson to Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm. Yep. And this is, you know, we're, we're getting into... When not did the far First from, World War? Well, this would have been around the time of the First World War. Probably. Yeah. So that was a little bit like, ugh. I also always laugh at take the beam out of your own eye. So that's actually a famous Jesus quote right. about hypocrisy. I always laugh about it because I had an old friend from Texas who would, when people would say stuff to her that she didn't like, she'd go, take the plank out of your eye. And <laughs> I asked her to explain it to me once and she was like, it's Jesus. And that was the only, <laughs> that was the explanation I got. And I was like, okay. <laughs> well done. Uh, cool. So uh, the silent sentinels wore purple, white, and gold sashes. Those were the colors of the suffrage of the national women's party, uh, yeah. purple for loyalty to the cause, white for purity, gold for hope. I can and probably will do a whole other episode on how white became the color of the suffragist movement. Mm. Um, it is pretty cool and definitely ties into the thing of, you know, fashion is political. Yeah. But again, I won't get into it right now. So public reaction to the Silent Sentinels was mixed. There were people who would like bring them coffee and warm bricks to stand on. They would help hold up the banners. There was other people who did not approve. Men would hurl insults, rotten fruit um, at them. They would tear their banners. Police never intervened when the women were attacked. Even within the suffragist movement, there was disapproval of their tactics as other suffragists, other, okay. So I, I was saying before that there was, you know, there were splits within the suffragist movement. The 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 sort of more like conservative factions were like, we would like women to get the right to vote. And the way that we will go about this is kind of like by using the tactics that women have always used, mm-hmm. you know, to get what we want. So it was it was a kinder, more user societally user-friendly yeah. version yeah. of this stuff. These factions also wanted the movement to, to basically, they were looking for women to win the right to vote state by state. And then the idea was that all women would be able to elect a pro-suffragist Congress. I, I think, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's been stuff like that has tried to happen like yeah. that since then and it's slow going yeah the new york times called the protests silent silly and offensive mm. wilson was real like whatever about the protests like sometimes he would like go out and invite them in for coffee or like tip his hat and say hello other times he would completely ignore them he didn't like the silent sentinels but he did eventually recognize that they were a group of citizens seriously presenting him with a real issue yeah Okay, so in June and July of 1917, the protesters start to be arrested for obstructing traffic. They get sentenced to either jail time or fines. Every woman chooses jail time to make a statement. When these women are arrested, they are originally taken to the D.C. jail, which is actually a prison. It's not like just a jail, it's a prison. But when too many women start to get arrested at the various protests, they start being shipped off to Occoquan? Workhouse in Virginia. That's a it's a tough one for me to say. Well, when I hear one. workhouse, I kind of cringe. It's like- yeah. And I mean, what it was was a low security workhouse prison. Yeah. 
you know, this is sort of life at a quote, oak, 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 mm, let me try that again, a coquan. <laughs> uh, upon arrival, everything is taken from the women but their clothing. They are then forced to strip naked and bathe in a communal showering station that only has one bar of soap for the entire prison. The women are like, no thanks. Yeah, we're good. They are then given dirty prison clothing and taken to eat dinner, which was barely edible. It was frequently rotten. Mm. It had worms in it, et cetera. This workhouse prison was not nice. Like this, you know, this wasn't cushy in any way, shape or form. It was dirty, infested with vermin. It wasn't safe. <laughs> Something that came up a lot, which I'm like, I'm not really sure. What, okay. But apparently <laughs> it, tons of people there had syphilis. Mm. So, you know, well, not great. As you do. But I was like, why like is that. this, why is this listed? Like, I mean, you can't get a syphilis by like sitting next to somebody. Yeah. So those are just a little bit. People were like, guys, syphilis everywhere. I mean, I'm actually realizing as we're talking about this, I don't, other than through sex, I don't know how you get syphilis. Like, are there I mean, other ways to get it? I mean, I'm sure there, like, you know, I think, okay. To my understanding, it is you know, your kind of run-of-the-mill exchange of body, body fluids. Yeah. I feel like a mother can, I may be confusing this with gonorrhea, but I feel like a mother can pass syphilis to her child during birth. I think that's true. Like as the baby passes through, through the birth canal, if it's a, you know, a regular old-fashioned vaginal birth, that the mother can, can transmit syphilis. So, you know, I mean... Yeah, you're talking about like mucousy membranes and all that good stuff. So if it was just like a generally unsanitized environment. I like, mean, I guess, but like, again, you'd have to be putting like your eyeball on it or something. Yeah. Or like sitting somewhere without any underwear. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. All, all in all, though, like bad news. Right. All in all, just still kind of gross and unsafe. So as more and more women start to get arrested, the sentences get longer and longer. It started out at three days or paying a fine of like, I think it was like $10. And then they just start going up from there with every woman being like, I'll take the jail time. I'll take the jail time. I'll take the jail time. Um, When Alice Paul is finally arrested on October 20th, 1917 and thrown into the DC jail, she's given a sentence of seven months. Yeah. So... Alice Paul gets arrested. She's sentenced to seven months. She gets thrown into the DC jail, so not the workhouse prison. Right. Um, Paul is immediately put into solitary confinement for two weeks with nothing to eat but bread and water. If you are unfamiliar with the dehumanizing effects of solitary confinement, give yourself the the, the gift of education and looking in on that. Solitary confinement is, is awful. It is... Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it should be used for, but it's frequently used, in, in my humble opinion, incorrectly. It is, it, is a, um, it is not a good thing. So she gets thrown into solitary confinement. She doesn't, don't, they don't give her anything to eat but bread and water. So when she gets out, she's obviously very sick and very weak. She yeah. gets taken to the prison hospital. And it's there that Alice Paul begins a hunger strike. Word gets out about Paul's hunger strike and a bunch of women in the workhouse prison join her in solidarity. The prison doctors don't like this. So they start force feeding these women. They're strapped down. Tubes are inserted into their throats. Sometimes I have seen stuff that sometimes when the women would like not allow their mouths to be opened, they would stick tubes up their nose. 
Yeah. And they were force-fed high-protein foods like raw eggs mixed with milk. Many women could not handle that yeah. that amount of high-protein food, and they would they would throw up. Okay, so that brings us to the actual Night of Terror. On November 14th, 1917, 33 newly arrested women are waiting to be proc... proc mm, <laughs> are waiting to be processed at Aquaquan. I'm never going to get that right. Um, so they've just arrived there. The superintendent, a real asshole named W.H. Whitaker, says, fuck it, fuck these ladies, and tells his guards to brutalize the women to teach them a lesson. Uh. Nearly 40 guards burst into the room where the 33 women are waiting and they drag them from the room and throw them into dark, dirty cells. Guards beat... Okay, so all of these women that I'm going to be talking about here next are all uh, members of the the suffragist movement. I believe they're all silent sentinels. There we go. Guards beat Lucy Burns. They chained her hands to the cell bars overhead and they leave her there all night. So dangling from her wrists. Yeah. Uh, you, can, you can die from that. Yeah. Like it's not like it's not a fucking joke. Like it, I mean, that's basically the same as being crucified. Yes. Ugh. Ugh. Okay. They throw Dora Lewis into a cell and they smash her head on the iron bed frame. She gets knocked unconscious from this. Mm. Dora's cellmate, a woman by the name of Alice Cousseau, sees Dora get knocked out and believing her dead, she has Alice has a heart attack. Alice Cousseau gets no medical attention until the following morning. Dorothy Day is repeatedly, repeatedly slammed over the back of an iron bench. Guards grabbed, beat, dragged, choked, pinched, and kicked the, and kicked these women. Like, I don't know why there's something about pinched that makes me feel real like, Yeah. Well, cause it's, it's like classic, like bullying almost. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know. There's something about the pinching that like every, I mean, all of this is not great, but there's something about the pinching that just creeps me out real bad. Superintendent Whitaker summons the U S Marines. Okay. Okay. After these attacks. Um, and this sets off a wave of hunger strikes throughout the suffragist movement. Yeah. News of the attacks hits the public and it increases public support for the suffragist movement a little. Not a lot, <laughs> but just a teeny know, bit. Um, inching du- in the right direction. Maybe. Inching, I guess, in the right direction. Dudley Field Malone, uh, he was part of Wilson's administration, and he's so horrified by the events of the Night of Terror that he resigns his post in solidarity. So good, good on you, guy. Dudley. Yeah. On January 9th, 1918, Wilson finally announces support for women's suffrage. On January 10th, the House of Representatives just barely passes the amendment. Senate says it won't even look at it until October. Was was Mitch McConnell still the Senate? Probably you. Leader? Probably you fucker. Oh, you fucking little fucker. Um, he's like, we'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> Oh my god, that made my night. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking ale. Um, (laughs) Okay. 
Oh, sorry. Okay. So yeah. So Senate's like the house of reps, like I said, passes it January 10th, just barely the Senate's like, we'll look at it in October. Uh, on May 21st of 1919, the house of representatives passes the 19th amendment. The Senate passes it two weeks later on June 4th. The 19th amendment was finally ratified on August 26th, 1920 after Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify it. Nice. Alice Paul, and many other suffragists would turn her eyes towards the Equal Rights Amendment after the passing of the 19th Amendment. And the Equal Rights Amendment, for anybody who doesn't know, is the proposed amendment designed to guarantee equal legal rights for all American citizens regardless of sex. And that was work that would, sadly take her through to the end of her life in 1977. On January 15th of 2020, this year, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Whether its protections for women's rights are actually added to the Constitution remains an open question. And that is the story of the Night of Terror 1917. It's crazy that, like, I didn't realize the Equal Rights Amendment went back that far. I know that it was a big push in the seventies mm-hmm. and then it didn't happen. And then we're still trying to push it now, but I mean, we're going back yep. to the teens and twenties. That's crazy. Yeah. Over well, a hundred years to get this fucking thing. Yeah. And it makes me, I had, I, somebody had told me once that in, in talking about the civil rights movement, that like the elders of, of the black community who had lived through and like marched in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and all of that stuff were seeing you know, that really not very, like, you know, they were still fighting the same battles. Yeah. However many decades later. And I don't know, that's, that is, that's hard. I like to get up every day and be like, okay, like I'm going to get to work on the fight that like my grandmother or like my mother fought, my grandmother fought, like, yeah. I mean, I do think personally, I think we're going to see the equal rights amendment passed and ratified within our lifetime. I hope so. Like, you know, hopefully our lifetimes are going to go on for a while. I'm not going to put money on how soon that's going to happen. Yeah. 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 So that, you know, sucks, but white women did get the right to vote with the 19th amendment. I mean, you know, there's, there's something. Silver lining. Moving the right direction. Yes. Yes. We hope. (laughs) Hopefully fingers crossed. Okay. Well, I'm going to take you back to around the same time period. And talk about the dumbbell murder. Okay. Um, so this is the story of a woman named Ruth, Ruth Snyder. She was born Ruth Brown in Manhattan in 1895. Ooh. And then at some point, I could not find the exact year, but at some point she married her husband, a guy named Albert Snyder, who was the art editor of Motorboat Magazine. I'm and sorry, Motorboat her, Magazine? I know. I don't know why they need an art editor at Motorboat <laughs> This was his job. <laughs> Why did they need a motorboat magazine? Okay. Who knows? Um, I, I did not do the research into that. Now okay. I should do an episode just on motorboat magazine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so she married this guy, Albert Snyder, uh, and then she became a housewife in Queens. But Ruth was uh, real pissed off at Albert. One of the major reasons she was real pissed off at him is that he had apparently never gotten over his previous fiance. There's a woman named Jessie Guichard who had died 10 years earlier. They all had photos of her up in the house, and then he would tell everybody who listened, including Ruth, his new wife, that Bouchard was the finest woman I ever met. Quote. Okay. So, you know, not mm. not a great move there, Albert, but 
Yeah, you know, that's that's not okay. Doesn't mean he deserved what happened to him, but I'll decide um, that. Yeah. <laughs> so then, in 1925, Ruth uh, began an affair with a traveling corset salesman. I just love the the era that you could have traveling corset salesmen. Okay, a, um, and interesting because corsets come into my next story as well. Oh, <laughs> that's cool. So, so there is a there is a theme. <laughs> yeah, there is on accident. So she started an affair with this traveling corset salesman named Henry Judd Gray. And then pretty quickly, it sounds like she had convinced him to help her murder her husband. Now, from what Gray had said is that, well, she was a seductress and she used her feminine wiles on me and sucked right. me down this dark path. And I'm like, whatever, dude. Like, yeah. you agreed to help murder this woman's husband largely for the money. She convinced yeah. Albert to purchase a $48,000 life insurance policy. Mm-hmm. And then with the help of a disreputable insurance agent who apparently also went to prison for this, she forged his signature, which created a, a quote, double indemnity clause, which meant that the payout would be doubled if Albert died violently. Now, if this sounds familiar to you good film fans out there, hold your horses because I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> and I, I really tried to find more information on this, but I couldn't. Okay. Uh, supposedly, Gray later told authorities that Ruth had actually tried to kill Albert seven times previously and failed. And I just want to know like what she tried that didn't work. And okay, let's press pause here for a moment. Let's okay. say that you were in a relationship with somebody. My first question is, was he aware of the attempt of, of the attempts on his life? I'm going to think not. <laughs> <laughs> Like, do you think it was like, I feel like it's, this just makes me think of a very like, you know, Looney Tunes, Wile E. Coyote, Roadrunner type of thing where like anvils are falling on him. And he's like, how strange. Well, I just imagine him like walking through his house, staring at the picture of his dead fiance, being all (laughs) sad. All his wife's like coming up and like trying to hit him with a hammer. And he's just like, right. Yeah. yeah, like right when she swings it, he like stop. He like bends down to tie his shoe like, or whatever. Right over it's just like fucking Keystone Cops over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, so she tried to kill him seven times previously. Got it right on the eighth try. So on March twentieth, Ruth let Gray, a Henry Judd Gray, into their home. He garroted Albert, so strangled him. Okay, uh, okay. Then stuffed his mouth full of chloroform-soaked rags. And then beat him to death with the weight from a window sash. So they were they were like leaving nothing to chance this time. <laughs> okay, uh, wait. Go through that one more time. So they garroted him. Uh-huh. Then they stuffed his mouth full of chloroform-soaked rags. Okay. And then just beat him to death with the weight from a window sash. Okay, yeah. So That's that'll, thorough. That'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah. They had a – Ruth and Albert had a nine-year-old daughter named Lorraine – and she was asleep in the next room, slept through the entire thing. Jesus. So then okay. Ruth called the police. Like Henry Judd Gray, the corset salesman, snuck out. She called the police and she told the police two, quote, giant Italians broke into the home, knocked her out, stole her jewelry, and then murdered her husband. Okay. And the cops were like, mm, we don't think so. For one thing, you sure don't look like you were just knocked out. Like right. she seemed fine. <laughs> um okay. so like let's let's take a look around this house and they found the quote stolen jewelry hidden under her mattress 
So why know, didn't she send it with the dude? Um, lots of questions. Lots of questions. <laughs> so they were like, yeah, this doesn't let me just let me just say it right here. It's called the dumbbell murder for a reason, and I'll get that okay. for a minute. But basically, okay. this is the dumbest murder plot in the history of murder <laughs> plots. <laughs> then getting to the next part of why it's so dumb. So they found the jewelry and they were like, Yeah, this is not adding up. They go back to Ruth. And they present her with, they found like a piece of paper or a letter or something that had the initials JG printed on it. Okay. They were like, well, what does this mean? Well, apparently it was a memento. It was an old letter that Albert had kept from his previous fiance, Jesse Gouchard. Mm -hmm. Okay. But Ruth didn't know that. So she saw the JG and she was like, well, what does Judd Gray have to do with this? Come on, um, lady. <laughs> yeah, just like try a little bit. Just just keep your mouth shut. Yeah. And they were like, who is Judd Gray? <laughs> She's like, um, <laughs> I don't know. But why Why are you asking about him? And they were like, hmm, okay, let's find this Judd Gray guy. So they go looking for Judd Gray. It turns out he's at his home, which is up in Syracuse, New York. Mm-hmm. Or he was up in Syracuse, New York. I'm not sure if he lived there. Okay. But he told them, well, I, I was, I've been here for the last week or whatever. Like he claimed he was there the night of the murder. They poked around and realized that he had a friend rent a hotel room in his name to establish his alibi. So the whole house of cards is just crumbling wow. down around them. So they put him in the box, so to speak, okay. uh, start interrogating him. And he just folds like a card table, basically right. gives up the whole plot. So they go uh, arrest Ruth. And then, of course, Ruth and Judd Gray, they just turn on each other in court. And they're like, no, she did it. No, he did it. No, she did it. Neither strategy particularly worked. It became a hugely sensational story, largely because of the, quote, tabloid wars that were going on at the time, uh, specifically Mm -hmm. between the Daily Graphic, the Daily News, and then the William Randolph Hearst-owned Daily Mirror. Mm -hmm. Um, And they just ginned up this whole story. And she was really, like, presented as this seductress black widow type character a journalism professor named maureen beasley this is a quote from her i think she's more recent she said the newspapers did not hesitate to make up details because there wasn't a strict adherence to facts so you know well you know same in 2020 i know it's like so we've made no progress fake news is has been around since the beginning of news basically Mm -hmm. So they were convicted, sentenced to death. Ruth was executed on January 12th, 1928 in the electric chair at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. She was the first woman executed in New York since 1899. Wow. Yeah. Photographs were not allowed, but a Chicago Tribune slash New York Daily News reporter, I guess the company, it was like the same parent company on them Mm -hmm. because he was writing for both papers. The same media conglomerate? The same media conglomerate, exactly. A guy named Tom Howard, he was able to sneak what was called a plate camera in strapped to his ankle. Uh Like right at the moment where they turned on the juice, he took a picture. So there's a real famous picture of her like in the electric chair. (gasps) Yeah. And I was thinking like, should we post this on social media? And I'm like, I don't know. Is it too grisly? Let us know in the comments. Yeah. And then maybe we'll do like a hidden, maybe we can, maybe, maybe we can do like a, here's a picture of a puppy. Yeah. And if you want to swipe and see the next picture, do so it's, at your own this is, leisure. This is Snyder getting zapped to death. I'm sorry. I have to go back to the thing of, okay, what year is this? Is, is she electrocuted? 1928. Okay. Like, did they have little cameras? Apparently. I didn't know this. Okay. But he had I'm... some sort of 
<laughs> and I didn't do research into like the mechanics of the camera, although I did see somewhere online they said that his camera is now like in the Smithsonian Museum. Shut up. Okay. Um, so I don't know if it was like some specially designed camera for this specific purpose. And you said it was, he snuck it in strapped to his ankle? Strapped to his ankle. And like right when they turned the juice on, he's just like, Click. he just high kicked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's a very, I mean, it's a very clear photo. He's like, um, don't mind me, everybody. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I don't um, mean to make light of, of capital murder. I mean. Capital punishment. I mean, I'll make light of these people because they were just so stupid. That okay. I really, I can't <laughs> feel any sympathy for them, regardless oh of our feelings on capital punishment yes no but it's, it's it's a very clear photo it's not like a gory photo but it's clearly a woman strapped to an electric chair and it's supposedly right at the instant that they turned on wow so she's she died and then judd gray was executed 10 minutes after her uh, ruth and albert's daughter lorraine who was sleeping in the next room she ended up being the subject of a big custody battle between albert's brother and ruth's mother Mm. Ruth's mother ultimately won and then later said, like, well, she knows her parents died, but we haven't really told her how they're dead. So, and then there's, I couldn't find anything more about Lorraine. Now, one thing that's interesting about this story is that I'm not going to go so far as to say that Ruth Snyder is the, like, basis for the femme fatale trope. Mm-hmm. in film noir in hardwell crime fiction but she's clearly like she became sort of the prototypical film noir okay to the point that novelist james m kane actually uh used this story for the basis of two separate stories so he okay. wrote the book the postman always rings twice in 1934 <gasps> uh-huh that was loosely based on on this story and then even more closely based on it was the novella Double Indemnity from 1943, mm-hmm. which very specifically uses this trope of the double indemnity research or insurance policy, where if someone dies a violent death, the payout is double. The film adaptations of both of those stories, Double Indemnity uh, by Billy Wilder in 1944, and then The Postman Always Rings Twice in 1946 by a guy named Tate Garnett. Don't know who that is. Mm. They're considered two of the greatest film noirs of all time. Cool. Um, and I will say, I've actually never seen The Postman Always Rings Twice. Mm-hmm. Double Indemnity is like top 10 favorite movie for me. Like, really? It is so fucking good. The screenplay, like Billy Wilder was just unreal as a screenwriter. I actually teach scenes from Double Indemnity in my screenwriting class just on how to write dialogue. Like the dialogue nice. is just unreal. And it's really like, I think Double Indemnity is probably of from what I've seen, I think it's the greatest film noir of all time. And it all goes back to this story, which was called The Dumbbell Murder, uh, mm-hmm. specifically named by Damon Runyon, uh, who was a journalist at the time. Mm-hmm. And the name came from two things. One, the weight, that window sash weight that was used mm-hmm. to kill Albert and B because Ruth and Gray were so fucking dumb. Like they were the, <laughs> literally the dumbest killers in the history of dumb killers. Oh my God. What's amazing when you see Double Indemnity, the movie, it's like, well, this is how this story would have gone if these characters were not complete idiots. Complete idiots. Who's yeah. the woman in Double Indemnity? Barbara Stanwyck. Ah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a really, like, if you haven't seen Double Indemnity, it's, it's fantastic. I have not. I'll put it on the movie list. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So that is the story of the murder of Albert Snyder by well, his 
real stupid wife <laughs> and her real stupid lover. <laughs> uh, okay, well done. For our, our listeners out there, uh, if you want to know a real creepy fact about Scotty and I, we, we frequently dissect murders, stupid murders, and, yeah. and uh, talk about what... Out. What we would have done different. (laughs) Yeah, which sounds like a really dangerous thing to say on a podcast, but would I be stupid enough to talk about how I would do things differently in a murder if I was going to plan a murder? Yeah. Maybe Uh, it's like a double head fake out. Yeah. Maybe it's like a triple quadruple fake out. Who knows? So watch Uh, your back, people. Oh, God. Somebody around us is going to end up dead, and then we're going to be like, (laughs) people are going to be like, really? Seriously, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to keep location tracking on my phone turned on. Yep. <laughs> forever. Uh, okay, cool. Well done. That was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and I'm 100% going to look up that picture once we're done here. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send it um, to you. Yes. Okay. Uh, so my last story uh, takes us back also again to the uh, turn of the 20th century. And I'm going to talk about the Gibson girl. Oh, yeah. Um, so the story starts with Charles Dana Gibson. He was born September 14th, 1867. Gibson was an American illustrator. He created the Gibson girl. For anybody out there who doesn't know, we will of course post pictures on social media, but the Gibson girl was the was the illustration of a woman. She was dressed in like Edwardian clothing, so like shirtwaist, nipped uh, uh, n- nipped in little waist, and her hair, her probably her her biggest defining feature was that her hair was like piled onto onto the top of her head in this sort of like poofy bouffant. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I think I know that. Yeah, like you frequently saw her in like the old school Coca-Cola ads and and that kind of a thing. She's a very like delicately featured woman. Like I said, Gibson created the Gibson Girl and she was a personification of the feminine ideal of physical attractiveness during this 20 year period from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. The Gibson Girl was a blending of older American images of feminine beauty. That's like the the fragile, okay, (laughs) (laughs) I'm cracking up that they actually were able to classify this stuff. But these uh, previous, these older American images of feminine beauty was like the fragile lady and the voluptuous woman. Those two specifically influenced the Gibson girl. Combination of slender lines, a sense of respectability paired with a large bust and hips signifying femininity without vulgarity or lewdness. So she was this like tall, slender woman with an ample bosom, hips and a butt, a thin neck, hair piled high on top of her head with an exaggerated S-curve torso shape. Mm-hmm. Um, this look in real life was achieved by the use of a swanbill corset. Yeah. If you look up pictures of people in swanbill corsets, it's insane. Mm-hmm. It, it's insane. But I'm going to dip into a little bit of corset history here because... It's fascinating. So corsets were worn by women and men dating way back at, I mean, there's signs of them existing as early as the 1400s. They were stiff supporting, well, they are also, I mean, they still exist. They're stiff supporting constricting undergarments for the waist to shape the figure. Before the late 19th century, corsets were used to create a desirable V shape with the torso. So that's the shoulders being broader than the waist. In the 1700s, corsets were raised, like they went up high and they shaped, they sort of like shaped and protected the breasts, Mm -hmm. uh, tightened the midriff and supported the back and improved posture. So earlier corsets, they made bending at the waist a little bit restricted, but 
you actually could do a lot of stuff. You could do a lot of physical activity in them because they supported your back. Right. So that's cool. Uh, in the Victorian era, corsets transitioned to a more hourglass shape and tight lacing, which is just exactly what it sounds like. It's just really pulling those laces real yeah, tight. This goes back to your Imprecisi story a little bit. 100%. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So the, the shape of the corset changes so that it's not, it's, it's not creating like a, a conical, an inverted conical shape. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really more about accentuating a very tiny waist and then flared hips. I feel like when you see corsets today, that's still kind of the mode. Y- yes. Like and when you see burlesque and stuff, I feel like that's the design. That yeah. And there have. are, and there are different kind of corsets. If you are a costumer or, you know, like Scotty said, if you're in burlesque or you just are a fashion aficionado, there's like, you can start to see the various kinds of corsets and be like, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. Yeah. And I see like what, what each one is, is meant to do. But the hourglass really here in the Victorian era, the hourglass, and I mean, continues on even now, the hourglass figure is so popular like it is so indicative by the majority of society okay everything that i'm saying here is based on like what marketing and and ideals of feminine beauty right dictate so i'm going to say these things with the understanding that this is like the mindset that it's coming from not that this is the truth but that hourglass figure is seen as being so indicative as the ideal of feminine beauty like this big bust this teeny tiny waist these like round hips that that's what it's all for so these uh, hourglass corsets and tight lacing the shit out of them really started to become very popular and that like the hourglass corset and the tight lacing was really done to emphasize or modify even the body to have this really tiny waist and now, and yeah oh just a quick sidebar question i don't know yeah. if you ran across this in your research, I had always heard the story that like fainting couches were mm-hmm. a direct result of the development of the corset because literally women would like pass out because they couldn't breathe in these things. So they had to have a couch nearby. Now, is that mm-hmm. just like an old wives tale or is that true? It might be. It depends on, I would have to go and take a look at when fainting couches really came into style okay. because if it was during the Victorian period and we're talking about these, so the hourglass corsets along with the tight lacing put extreme pressure on the internal organs right um but the thing is is that it was always about it it was about altering the the look of the waist and you can breathe really deeply like not like the upper chest right and i mean i've worn like long lines and corsets and all of this stuff for the various like theater work that i have done i've sung in them Mm -hmm. i have done all of this stuff and it's all pretty easy now if you're talking more about the earlier versions which we're looking more for that like sort of v shape yeah. with the torso that is a bit more pressure on it's less pressure on the the organs and the abdomen but is restricting the movement of of the ribs and therefore the lungs right. a bit more so i'll yeah, look, there might I'll look into that yeah. yeah i was just curious because yeah. i've i'd always heard that and i was always like a little suspicious of that story but seems kind of plausible i yeah it's that's the that's you know it's one of the things where it's like it what could 100 be true 100 yeah. not be true at all if you want to get kind of grossed out you can look up the images of what 
prolonged corseting and tight lacing will do to your body. Mm. It's fascinating. It basically yeah. ends up looking like the ribs have melted. And you, have you ever seen the gif of like what happens to a woman's organs as the as a as a baby grows? Oh yeah. Or rather, I'm sorry, a person with a uterus as a baby grows, uh, and like the shifting of the organs and and how everything like moves and does that stuff. It's a similar thing mm-hmm. uh, with corsets, but. I mean, our bodies were designed to do that with with, well, with almost pregnancy. Seems, almost seems like the corset goes the other way. Like, yeah. yeah, it's weird. It's creepy, okay. <laughs> uh, but it is very cool. So we've got all this stuff happening with the corsets, and additionally, these sort of hourglass these these corsets were they were they were long. Like they went yeah. well past the the natural waist. I mean, you can find in certain modes of fashion, you can find corsets that go down to like the thigh which is just seems like a lot it just yeah i'm trying to imagine how that even works yeah it just seems like a lot that brings us to the edwardian or swan build corset it was also Mm -hmm. known as the s-bend or the health corset okay Okay. (laughs) so this corset was designed to be less harmful to the wearer's bodies as it lessened the pressure on the abdomen Mm -hmm. unfortunately in doing that, it forced the torso forward and pushed the hips out and back, causing this really exaggerated like S shape and yeah. placing extreme strain on the back. And I um, feel like you see a lot of like, quote unquote, sexy pictures with that kind of pose. Right. And it's, it's like when you look at people, like I said, if you, if you Google images of women in Swanbill corsets, it's like the front of them is flat and then they, so like they go flat and then around the, around the hips, they jut out in the back. So if you, again, well, it if sounds you're like fish- an ostrich or something. Yeah. And if you're, if you're a, if you're a fashion person and you're familiar with bustles, swanbill corsets were creating that silhouette without the bustle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like when you see it, you're like, why did anybody think this was going to be good for anybody? Yeah. It looks, I mean, it, it, looks nothing but uncomfortable and also yeah. it took away the support from the breasts which right. sucks kind of the point. yeah okay so already the gibson girl is providing in this like unattainable unmaintainable ideal for women mm-hmm. so even though she's wearing this god-awful swanbill corset the gibson girl is always portrayed as being like at ease and stylish they show her like doing light activities like bicycling and, and shit <laughs> the gibson girl was actually like in addition to being this like physical aesthetic that was deemed very desirable she actually was really more about this about a persona she was upper middle class always fashionably dressed she often exercised and was liberated enough to enter the workforce she might even attend college to find herself a good husband but she would never ever 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 be part of the suffragist movement (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a quick U.S. history break here. So like I said before, my other story, at this point in the country, well, in the world, really, women were looking for the right to vote. Uh, More women are earning the right to go to college and become doctors, lawyers, journalists, professors. They're looking to exert autonomy in domestic and private spheres of literature, theater, etc. Women want legal rights to property and the choice in marital and sexual partners. Mm -hmm. This little thing, the, the choice in marital and sexual partners, becomes a huge thing with the Gibson girl. So these women, these like, you know, modern women that are going to school, they're getting jobs, they're looking to marry who they want to marry, if they even want to get married at all, they became known as new women. Mm -hmm. They were seeking 
agency and pushing against the limits set by a male-dominated society. So, in other words, they were fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. The Gibson Standing athwart history yelling, stop. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So, the Gibson girl was like the new woman light. Mm -hmm. She looked for socially acceptable forms of liberation, but she never, ever involved herself in politics and would never be caught usurping traditionally masculine roles. Mm-hmm. She stayed within so the bounds. So no Rosie the Riveters. Or- no Rosie the Riveters. Yeah. You know, like, uh, yeah, no no politics, definitely no politicians looking to be the breadwinner. Uh-uh. All of that is is creepy. So she stayed within the bounds of feminine roles without, like, really without too much transgression. Her beauty and her sexuality were fetishized. Like when you look at the way Gibson portrayed the Gibson girl, it's this really weird, it's, I I don't know, it's really weird. Okay, so her Gibson, like Gibson portrayed the Gibson girl as having like sexual dominance over men, but in Mm. this like really fetishized way, like he would draw, there's a, a very famous Gibson girl illustration that's called the weaker sex. And it's, I think four Gibson girls sitting around a table and they have a magnifying glass and they're looking at like this teeny tiny man. Mm. So it's this weird, they like these giant women. The Gibson girl was frequently illustrated as like stepping upon men. The men who followed her were always like dumb and dim-witted. They would like do anything and go anywhere for her. She she had like, she like exerted this weird control over them. All of this to say that she was basically in this gilded cage atop of a pedestal, right? Yeah. Like Almost weird, like little sidebar. You ever heard of mm-hmm. R. Crumb, the comic book artist? He's like so. from like 60s, 70s. Like he was really famous for these. Like he was this kind of nebbishy guy. He's an uh-huh. underground comic book artist. Really famous for his like illustrations of these, like of him as this little nebbishy weirdo being mm-hmm. dominated by these Amazonian women with like enormous thighs. So <laughs> things like almost like that you can like trace a line back to the Gibson girl. Almost. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's very weird because you know, it says like there was, there's, there's a lot of information about how she was shown to be sexually dominant over men, but only in that they wanted her very badly. Yeah, like, well, like you said, it's very fetishized. Right, yeah. Like there's no, basically it's all through the male gaze, right? Like mm-hmm. she only exists to to be gazed at yeah. by, by men. So on that note, the Gibson girls' world revolved around men. Mm-hmm. If she was single, a romance provided her, it re- relieved her of her boredom. If she was married, she was frustrated by the lack of romantic love in her life, but she was able to be distracted by her other female friends mm. or when she was, or she could dote on her baby. <laughs> like, weird. yeah, it's, it's such a weird. Yeah. It's like writing this real line between like, like you said, the liberated woman, but not, not too liberated, not really. Right, yeah. So funnily enough, she was quote unquote liberated because she was lovely and that would get her everything that she would need or want out of life. The Gibson girl was beautiful, docile, 
and anonymous. There is a thing that I have seen floating. I've seen it several times, like floating around the internet. And it says something along the lines of whenever you feel bad about yourself, ask yourself who benefits from you feeling that way. Mm -hmm. To me, this is 100% just my two cents in, in all of this. But to me, it really feels like Gibson was trying to like not just create this pretty picture with with these drawings or even like a a physical ideal for for American women but this very clear road map of how a how American women should behave if they wanted to continue to enjoy the privileges they held in polite society yeah you know what I mean? Like, it was like, if you want to continue to be protected and taken care of, you need to continue to act this way. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, this whole idea of like liberated, like none of this sounds liberating. No, describing. no, <laughs> like, no, it, it doesn't. Yeah. So it's very much, it's like this very constructed reality. Yeah. And this very like, look, see, you're free. You're free. Look at all the men you can choose look, from. Look how free you are to be pretty for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like exactly. And 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 very much like what more could you want out of life but to be pretty? It's so fascinating to think about like just not long after this is you have the rise of the flapper which just seems like so diametric. I mean, I don't know much of that history, but just what I do know seems like such a almost like reaction. I almost wonder if it is like almost a reaction to the Gibson girl. It I because flappers came around in the late like in the twenties in in the late teens and the twenties and yeah I mean that's like waists get dropped so you have a silhouette that is uh, mm-hmm. like much more uh, like boxy and it doesn't cling corsets are thrown out that's when like brassiers and stuff start coming right. into the mix and you yeah, know the hair um, gets bobbed. Yeah. And it, yeah. I think, I think 100% again, saying that like fashion is political, that was definitely a reaction to these ideals of, like I said, the sort of docile femininity. Right. Um, and then you also have, you know, like prohibition is going on. World war one has ended. Like yeah. everybody's losing their minds. Roaring twenties. Yeah. Roaring twenties. Very interesting topic. So, okay. So back to Gibson and his weirdness. So he believed that the Gibson girl represented the beauty of the American woman. This is a direct quote from Mm -hmm. Gibson himself. Quote, I'll tell you how I got to, uh, I'll tell you how I got what you have called the Gibson girl. I saw her on the streets. I saw her at the theaters. I saw her in the churches. I saw her everywhere and doing everything. I saw her idling on Fifth Avenue and at work behind the counters of the stores. I haven't really created a distinctive type. The nation made the type. There isn't any Gibson girl, but there are many thousands of American girls. And for that, let us all thank God. You guys missed the look that Amelia just made, (laughs) but it was glorious. It also, I mean, it's, let's not pretend that it's any accident that she was not called the Gibson woman. Of course. That she's called the Gibson girl. And even when Gibson talks about like the guys that he shows, those are Gibson men. Yeah. But this is the Gibson girl. Gibson believed that America's Gibson girls would become more and more beautiful as time progressed. This is another quote. They are beyond question the loveliest of all their sex. In the United States, of course, where natural selection has been going on as elsewhere and where much more than elsewhere, that has been a great variety to choose from. The eventual American woman will become 
even more beautiful than the woman of today. Her claims to that distinction will result from a fine combination of the best points of all those many races which have helped to make our population. Mm. Why do you think about girls so much, Gibson? Yeah. Also, I just, I've got to imagine if he was still alive, like once the flapper era started, he must have lost his goddamn mind. He probably did. He was probably like, there's breasts swinging everywhere and I can't, I can't see their butts. And yeah, (laughs) I don't know. Like all of it just seems a lot like very selective breeding. Yeah. Um, You know, eugenics was all the rage at this Mm -hmm. point. So I'm sure that played into account. Of course, as you can imagine, every Gibson girl was white mm-hmm. very clearly white i feel like every image i've seen that's like this is it's always like a blonde woman yeah i mean at i was about to say at worst but um i <laughs> like the the darkest she'll go is probably like a like a honey yeah or sort of like caramel colored hair yeah in the colored illustrations of her that i have seen um but like I don't know, like, I don't know if any redheads are in there. There's certainly no, like, honest-to-God well, I mean, brunettes. As we all know, like, redheads are witches, so. We have friends who are redheads. <laughs> that was um, specifically for them. Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. Um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Gibson, there were a couple of real Gibson girls. Uh-huh. Like, women that very much inspired the look. Okay. Uh, the first one is Irene Langhorn Gibson. Uh, she's the sister of Lady Nancy Astor, who was the second elected female member of parliament. Irene was Gibson's wife. Mm-hmm. So I'm say. sure, <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure having, uh, having a sister who is the second elected female member of parliament, like really set, you know, really, really got old Gibson's socks in a twist. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, So the story goes that they met at a dinner at New York's Delmonico's restaurant, uh, which again is another rabbit hole that you could fall into. The history of this restaurant is is awesome. (laughs) Uh, So Irene was spent the evening talking to novelist Richard Harding Davis, who later served as the inspiration for the often confused Gibson man. That night, Gibson sketched Irene and she became the first Gibson girl. The second was Evelyn Nesbitt. She was an artist's model, a chorus girl, and an actor. She is the Gibson girl in the internal question illustration. That is something that I'll post on social media, but it's one of the most famous Gibson girl illustrations. Okay. Like she has her hair piled on top of her head, but she has like a loose curl that kind of like comes down and over her shoulders. So her hair kind of looks like a question mark. Oh, okay. Nesbitt is the most well-known, sadly, for her love triangle with architect Stanford White, who was three times her age. And her husband, Harry K. Thaw. Thaw shot and killed White at the rooftop theater of Madison Square Garden. And that set off the resulting trial Mm. of the century. Interesting. Um, BT dubs, this was like 1900, 1901. So to say that that was the trial of the century. I mean, feels I feel like, like there were a whole bunch of trials of the century. There were a ton. Time. So there was like Fatty Arbuckle, Leopold. Not Lowe, the least of like, which is OJ Simpson. Like yeah. it, it was real early to call that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like way early. I'm not going to talk much more about Evelyn Nesbitt because she actually deserves an episode of her own. Uh, Her story is long and sad and weird and Mm. fascinating. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about her. The last is a woman named Camille Clifford. Wikipedia says that she was the most famous Gibson girl. I don't think I've ever heard of her. Yeah, I know. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> so there's that. Uh, she was a Belgian-born stage actor. In the early 1900s, she won a $2,000 magazine contest, which was actually sponsored by Gibson himself mm-hmm. to find a living version of the Gibson girl. So this guy is just like He's obsessed. just fucking obsessed with it, and it's gross. Yeah. Um, so while Camille had, she only had walk-on and non-speaking roles, she became famous not because of any talent that she might or might not have, but because she was beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. and I mean, she, I mean, all of these women are. When you, Irene, Evelyn, yeah. Camille, like when you look at pictures, they're all lovely women. So she was apparently very tall, very tall and slender. She had a towering coiffure and an 18 inch waist hourglass figure that mm-hmm. um, she, like her body was really like the template for the Gibson girl design. Like the prototype. The Gibson girl is thought to be the first American national beauty standard for women. And the Gibson girl image has been put on everything from saucers to ashtrays to chair covers, pillow covers. Mm -hmm. She's been on everything. By the start of World War I, though, the Gibson girl really kind of started to fall out of, of fashion most likely because women were like, Hey, we have shit we need to go do because all of our men are off at war. So like, I can't, I can't like, I need to walk. Right. So thanks for this. That's been fun. I'm going to put on my flapper dress and go about my day. Yeah. And go jitterbug my cares away. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Some final thoughts on all of this. Gibson's wife, Irene was notorious for her progressive politics. This Mm. also kind of makes me wonder how much of this was that Gibbs, like, like she helped trouble women and children. She used her society connections to affect change in the world. Like mm-hmm. she was a mover and a shaker. She got shit done. And part of me really wonders if Gibson was over there in his fucking little studio being like, oh, I wish I just had a wife who wanted to just stay home and like yeah. rub my feet for me. Trying and, to put her in her place kind of. Y- yeah. yeah. Which, Okay. This is totally 100% Scotty and I theorizing, but if that's the case, to do so like publicly yeah, and in such a way is a dick move. It's a super dick move. Yeah. Part of this information that I got from this, uh, so this whole story, you know, information, uh, information came from a lot of places and I was bad and didn't write my sources, but one of them was a mental floss article and in it, It says, while Gibson turned women back into girls, Irene quietly and tirelessly showed just what a woman could achieve. Mm. And that's the story of the Gibson girl. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, it's interesting because I'd always heard the term Gibson girl. Mm -hmm. And I always like, I've seen those pictures. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think I almost thought like the Gibson girl had something to do with Gibson guitars or something. But (laughs) (laughs) turns out, nope. Not at all, but not good all. guess. Yeah, actually not a very good guess. Yeah. <laughs> so no, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And that was that was a fun little thing. Uh, again, like the rabbit holes that I was able to fall into from like the corsets and all of that stuff was uh, Delmonico's, like all of the internet rabbit holes that I was yeah, able to fall into. Sounds like you got a couple that. later episodes out of this. Yeah, 100%. Guys, this episode was meant to be a short one for Thanksgiving, and <laughs> really that not. is not at all the case. Our plan um, backfired pretty but much we were able, Yeah, but we were able to knock out some cool stories. Yeah, hope you guys uh, enjoyed it. That would not have made for a whole episode. Yeah. So have a good Thanksgiving, everybody. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to The Weirdest Thing. 
Yes. Shoot us a message, weirdestthingpod at gmail.com, or you can find us through Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. We're posting there. And we will be back to you after the holidays. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.